0: If you've got your Bibles, then I hope that you do. Please turn them this morning to Philippians chapter 1. Um, As a reminder, if you weren't here last week, we have just launched into a new short four-week sermon series uh, called Sent Together, where we're talking about what it looks like for us as the body of Christ to live as a community on mission for the glory of God. Those are nice words, but what do they mean, and what does that actually look like in our base groups? How do we flesh that out? And so, um, in these four weeks, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to start out here in Philippians 1. We're going to bounce around a few different places this morning, Um, and then uh, when we finish this, we've got the mission conference at the end of the month, uh, first weekend in November, and then we'll be back in our study in the book of Romans, picking up where we left off in Romans chapter 12. But we started this series last week looking at a portrait of biblical community. What is the portrait that we have of biblical community in Scripture, and how does that relate to us in the 21st century? How do we actually do that in the 21st century? We saw from Acts chapter 2 that the New Testament church experienced community as they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They said the apostles, uh, the apostles' teaching, the prayers, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we said that this word fellowship was the Greek word koinonia, and that they devoted themselves to this idea of koinonia, but that koinonia was more than just friendships. Friendships are good. We like to have friends. We like to have close friends. It's kind of the spice of life, they say. But koinonia is more than that. It's more than friendship. We talked about how that referred to a shared commonality that we have with one another in the body of Christ. A shared faith. A shared Lord. A shared commonality in our redemption. A common redemption. uh, Things that... The fact that we have a share in one another in the body of Christ. That I have a share in you and that you have a share for me and the and the other people that have covenanted together with one another in this faith fellowship. That we have a responsibility for one another. That we have a share in the body of Christ together. We saw how this koinonia manifested itself for the early church as they cared for one another, and sacrificed for one another, even to the point of selling their possessions and and giving the proceeds to those who were in need. And we saw how these things occurred for the early church, not once a week, but on a daily basis. As they were committing to meeting with one another in one another's homes day by day, we were told. And as we looked at that picture, we admitted admitted to one another that this was difficult for us. It was difficult for the first century church, even more so for us today because of our busy schedules, our full schedules, because time is so much more of a scarce commodity today than it was back then, or at least we think it is. It's also difficult simply because of our sin natures that it's scary. And, it, and sometimes it's scary for a reason. And it's sometimes intimidating. It's, it's hard and scary to move from a place of independence, even if that independence is really a delusion because we're not independent. But to move from a place of independence to a place of dependence and, if you will, interdependence on one another. We talked last week about how there are so many barriers to community, so many obstacles to this kind of koinonia that we see fleshed out on the pages of Scripture for the early church, so many potential defeaters of community. And that because those defeaters are there, because those obstacles are there, if we're going to persevere in pursuing biblical community and staying on that path, because remember, this is a this is a path, this is a journey to biblical community. It's not a destination that we get there and say, Okay, we can wear the badge of community now. It's a path. It's a journey. But in order for us to persevere and stay on that path and overcome these obstacles so that they're not walls, but they're hurdles that we're able to overcome, in order for us to do that, we need to remember the whys of community. And we talked about five whys, and I want to summarize them for you this morning as we begin because they also lay a foundation for what we're going to be talking about this morning. So these five whys that are going to keep us on the journey towards community, these are the fuel that keep us persevering in this. First of all, it is so that we might live out our new identity. We we need to see that our identity as believers in Jesus Christ, if we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, if God has saved us by grace through faith, then we need to see that we have a new identity And our identity now is that of a people redeemed for the glory of God, not simply a collection of individuals redeemed for the glory of God. This is counter to our American way of thinking. And by the way, we read the Bible differently too. I want to point out to you that of the 27 books of the New Testament, only two were written to individuals. The remaining 25, other than Titus and Philemon, were written, written to groups of people, were written to the body of Christ, were written, written, most of them were written to churches, to communities of people. They were written to groups of people. And so we, we, we read scripture oftentimes, and, and, and what do we automatically think? How does this apply to my life? Right? We ask that question. In fact, we're taught to ask that question. How does this apply to my life? Instead of automatically thinking as someone in the Eastern world would think, in which this was written, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to how we live as a community of believers? So we need to, we need to change our identity, and we need to be able to live out of that identity that we're, we are a people Redeem for the glory of God, not just a collection of individuals redeemed for the glory of God. Secondly, in order for us to stay in this journey towards biblical community, we need to understand that this is the way that we're going to be able to better reflect the glory of God, in whose image we have been made. Our triune three-in-one God, three persons in the Trinity, one divine community in the Trinity, and we have been made in His image. Image, And so we best reflect the image of our God when our unity and our commonality, our shared commonality, our koinonia is on display. And so we pursue it so that we might better reflect the glory of God. Thirdly, in order to better obey the one another's. We talked about how there are 59 imperative verbs in the New Testament that talk about things that we're to do with for and by one another. And we can't do them by ourselves. That's part of being incumbent as a command for one another's. We're told to confess our sins to one another. I'm sorry, you can't do that by yourself. You can't confess your sin to one another by yourself, right? You can't love one another by yourself. It requires you to be around people. It requires you to be moving towards people so that you find a venue where you can obey what God has commanded us to do and be. Fourthly, in order for us to continue the process of sanctification, that, that God is, is transforming us to be more holy, to, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what the process of sanctification is. And, and, and this is An important thing because this happens in the context of community. And then the fifth why was to do mission together. That this great commission that has been laid on all of us to go and make disciples of all nations is too big, too audacious, and too important for us to try to do on our own. We need one another. And we need one another locking arms with each other in order for us to have any hope of fulfilling that great Commission. So these are the wise. These are the. This is the fuel that's going to keep us in the game. That's going to keep us pursuing, though it's hard, though it's scary, though it's awkward. This is going. This is what's going to keep us in the game, so that we might live out of the new identity uh, of who we are in Christ now as a redeemed people of God. So that we might better reflect the glory of God. So that we might be more obedient to the one another's and not just the single commands. So, so that we might continue the process of sanctification and be able to fulfill the Great Commission together. But it's that fourth one that I want us to look at more closely this morning. To continue the process of sanctification. That God wants us on that path, on that journey towards biblical community because he's in the process of of transforming us to look more like his son, Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest arenas for that transformation process to occur in our lives is the context of biblical community. And in that context, one of the most powerful tools at our disposal, church, is the gospel. I want to give you an illustration that... I hope will kind of serve as the foundation for this morning as we seek to unpack what this looks like, looks like in our lives and in our base groups and in our community. Um, let's say we've got a, a big rock, just a raw piece of rock. Let's say um, we brought a, a large piece of rock up here, um, just a huge stone, uncut, just a big piece of rock, and we wanted to transform that large raw piece of rock into a beautiful statue. Well, one of the things that we would need to do is we would need to get a sculptor, right? That's what you call it, right? A sculptor or a sculptor? A sculptor, right? We'd need a sculptor to sculpt the rock, right? But nothing is going to happen to that rock Just because of the mere presence of a sculptor next to the rock, right? Doesn't matter how close that sculptor gets to the piece of rock, his presence, even if you have multiple sculptors around this rock, it's not going to change the rock. What's going to change the rock is if you put a hammer and a chisel into the hand of that sculptor or the multiple sculptors. And you allow them to begin to chip away at the rock. You allow them to begin to find the rough and jagged edges of that rock. And, and they begin to chip away at that rock. In such a way that over time, the rock is transformed. The rough edges begin to be chiseled away. And over time, what begins to take shape it's a beautiful statue. Church, we are, all of us, whom God has saved by grace, we are a raw piece of rock with lots of rough and jagged edges all over the place. And God intends to transform us into reflections of his glory. He intends to chip away at those rough edges such that we are conformed to the likeness of his son, Jesus. This is what the process of sanctification is, chipping away at those rough, jagged parts of who we are to bring us into conformity with the image of Christ. So what does God do? Part of what he does is he brings sculptors into our life. He brings many sculptors into our life within the context of biblical community. And those sculptors all have been given a chisel with which to chisel away at those rough edges, those jagged parts of us, that old sinful nature, the old man, the old flesh, so that we begin to look more and more like Jesus. And church, that chisel is the gospel. So this morning, what we're talking about is how the gospel intersects with community. Or we might say a gospel-centered community, or to go along with our metaphor this morning, a gospel-chiseled community. In other words, how do we take the chisel of the gospel and use it faithfully, wisely, graciously, and with great care? begin to be used by God to see our brothers and sisters transformed, to be more godly, more holy, more in love with Jesus, more faithful to mission, and not just us, but our marriages, our families, and even our church. What does that look like, and how does that happen? There are three assumptions that are necessary if the gospel is going to intersect with community, with our community, our koinonia, and result in this transformation process. Three assumptions. And the first is that we're all in process. We're all in process. Meaning none of us has yet been perfected, right? None of us has arrived. We all have jagged edges, we all have those rough parts of our exterior that need to be chiseled away. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Again, we're going to start here, but we're going to look at it in a number of different places. Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, God began a good work in us. When he saved us by grace through faith. Now, you might be here in your, this morning and, you, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. This work that we're talking about, that God began, that God is continuing, hasn't started yet in you. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God saved you by grace through faith, that he began a work in you on that day. Not just on you, but in you. He began that work on that day. That's in the past. And it says that he will bring that good work to completion one day. When? In the future. One day in the future, the work that he started in transforming us into the image of Christ will reach its completion when we look more like Jesus. And he brings us home to be with him in eternity. But that... that beginning and that ending implies that there's a middle. It it implies that there is a process of us being changed from what we were into who he intends for us to be. Now we've got to start here with with the fact the admission that we're all in process. Because if we're living under the false delusion that we're no longer still in process, that we no longer have any rough edges or jagged parts of us that need to be chiseled away, then we're never going to pursue biblical community. Unless it's just to change other people. And that kind of person, I'll I'll just admit to you, that kind of person is dangerous. The man or woman who sees nothing in them that needs to be chiseled away, but sees lots of rough edges and jagged parts in other people that needs to be chiseled away. That's a dangerous person. That's the dude that that is so focused on the, the stick that is in your eye while he's got this log sticking out of his own that Jesus spoke about. And that's not the kind of person that you want to be in community with. So we've got to begin with this, we're all in process, we're all God's projects, we're we're, we're all that rough, raw piece of rock that by God's grace, he's he's going to chisel away at us. The second assumption is that the gospel is God's chisel for completing us. The gospel is God's chisel that he uses to transform us to look more like Jesus in this process of sanctification. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What we find in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is probably uh, the most complete, the most concise um, description of what the gospel actually is as it defines the content of the gospel, if not some of its implications. So look at the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And you might want to underline the word remind. These brothers needed to be reminded of the gospel. Why? Because we tend to forget the truths of the gospel. Does that mean that we forget that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? No, but it it means that we, we tend to forget some of the implications of the gospel and the truths that that means for you and I. And so we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, but more importantly, we need to preach the gospel to one another. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received... In which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain so he says there that the gospel is first and foremost it's news it's a story it's, it's, it's news and it's news that is preached or proclaimed it's news that is received and, and believed and accepted it's also he says news in which we stand. These are truths in which we stand. That's something that happens in the present, right? In which we stand and by which we are being saved. That's an ongoing thing. That's something that's happening in the present. He says, he gives us next the content of the of the gospel. For I deliver to you as of first importance... What I also received, here's the content of the news, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul shows us here that there is a past, present, and future aspect of this news that is the good news that is the gospel. We also see this in Romans chapter 1 in verses 16 through 17. We've mentioned this verse many times as we've been going through the book of Romans together. As Paul launches into his gospel presentation in this letter... He starts it in verse 16 of chapter 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But verse 17 follows up and says, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, not just be saved. Not just something past, not something just future, but something in the now. The righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel is both past, present, and future. It tells us both what we are saved from and what we are saved to. But it also empowers us in the present to live a life that reflects the glory of God. We like to focus a great deal on how the gospel saves us from past sins and how the gospel saves us to eternal life with God in the future. And rightly so. Those are good and right things for us to focus on. But sometimes that leads us to tend to overlook the power of the gospel to continue in the process of sanctification, of being transformed into the image of Christ today and tomorrow and next week and next year and and the year after that until he brings us home. We've said before that the gospel saves us from both the penalty of our sin And the penalty of our sin is that we deserve judgment, eternal judgment, because of our rebellion against God. But the power of the gospel saves us from the penalty of our sin. That by faith in Jesus Christ, as our substitute, the righteous life of Jesus, his perfect obedience to to the law, gets imputed, credited to our account, so that God looks at us and says, they're made righteous by Jesus' righteousness. Not by their own. They are justified now. In that way, we are saved from the penalty of our sin. Jesus paid the penalty on our behalf. But we also talk about how the power of the gospel saves us from the very presence of sin. That one day he will return or he will bring us home and he will usher us into his presence. And in his presence there will be no sin. So we we, we talk about how we're saved from the penalty of sin. And that's amazing and great and, and, and to be reminded of one another. And we also talk about how we're saved one day. We will be saved from the presence of sin. But the reality is is that we're also saved by the gospel today and tomorrow and every day from the power of sin in our lives. It's influence. It's effect. It's grip on us. And so the gospel is the chisel that God uses Not not just to save us from the penalty of sin. Not just to save us to heaven one day and away from the presence of any sin. But it's the chisel that God uses in the day in and day out life of living the Christian life in community to chisel away at the rough edges and save us from the power of sin. So one of the greatest venues for how that where that process takes place is the context of biblical community. And that leads us to our third assumption. And that is that God puts the gospel in our hands. God puts the, 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 the chisel of the gospel into your hands and my hands. And he tells us to begin to chip away at the rough edges on the people that God has placed around us in biblical community. Turn, turn to Ephesians chapter four. Just want to look at a few verses there that give some background from this. Um, I would encourage you, if you didn't hear, if you if you weren't here for Tyler's sermon uh, that was based on this passage out of Ephesians four a few weeks ago, I would commend that to you. It does an excellent job of expositing this passage and uh, giving some of the foundation for why we do this and how we do this. But I want you to listen to the early church and, and, and how, how this gets fleshed out in the body of Christ. Paul says, beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4, And he, being God, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, he gave them, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we're growing, we're maturing in the faith. To mature manhood, to what extent? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus in love. So Paul Paul says that God gave the church leaders, specifically pastors, elders, teachers. And what was their job? Their job, according to Paul, was to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And the saints are us, those whom God has redeemed by grace through faith, those whom God has saved. We are the church. We are the saints. The body of Christ. And he says that, that he's given these teachers, these elders, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So the, the, the job of the church, the saints, us, is the work of the ministry. And the kind of ministry that Paul is talking about here is this life-on-life ministry. Not necessarily, you know, putting together an event or putting together a project or, or doing anything like that. It's, it's pressing into the one another of life with one another in this koinonia, shared commonality where we have a share in one another, a responsibility in one another, so that we are built up in our faith. He, he says, so that th- there may be a building up of the body of Christ, and it only happens when each heart is working properly so that it builds itself up in love. So elders and teachers equip the church to be able to build up the body of Christ to maturity. And how, and how do we build up the body of Christ to maturity? Verse 15. By speaking the truth in love. By speaking the truth in love. That's, that's not the pastor, elder, teacher. That's us. Us. That's the saints doing the work of ministry. How? By speaking the truth in love. And that truth that we speak is the truth of our faith. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth that we find in the word of God. So we've got these three assumptions. First of all, that we all have rough edges. That that we all have jagged parts of us that need to be chiseled away if we're to reflect the glory of God. Second of all, the chisel that God uses is the gospel. That's his instrument, to chisel away at those things so that we're conformed into the image of Christ. The third assumption is that God puts that chisel in our hands. God puts that chisel in your hands. And he says, Ken's got some rough edges. You're in community with him. You've got a responsibility. Chisel away with grace, with wisdom, with skill, chisel away now based on those assumptions there are three very basic but important implications that we need to note first of all we need to recognize all of us that if we're a member of this church if we are in covenant relationship with one another then we need to accept the mantle of being a chiseler you're one of those sculptors you are a chiseler I am a chiseler God wants to use me, this is what we all have to kind of own, God wants to use me to sharpen the faith and life of the people that he's placed in biblical community around me. Now, can we just admit together that that is difficult, (laughs) awkward, and requires great courage? But I would submit to you that the fuels that keep us on the path of pursuing biblical community for our own sanctification are the same five whys they are going to keep us holding up the chisel of the gospel to the people that God has placed around us as well. So, so think about those five whys again. To live out our new identity. That we're not a collection of individuals who have been redeemed for the glory of God. We are a people that have been redeemed for the glory of God. And so I'm in this not just for my own sanctification. But for the sanctification of my brother. Because he is part of this people whom God has redeemed for his own glory. And I take ownership because we're in covenant together and we're in community together. To better reflect the glory of God. That was the, the next why that we mentioned. If I understand that, that, that this, this brother is, is part of this people, that if he's off on his own with his rough edges, then, then God's glory is not going to be reflected as well as when I bring him back into that community and be used by God to be useful in applying the gospel to his life, to see him be transformed more and more to the image of Christ so that the the reflection of God's glory is is more complete and more accurate. To obey the one another's. I should want myself, not, not just myself, to be obedient to the one another's of Christ. If I love my brother, then I'm going to want him to grow in his obedience to one another's of Scripture as well. to to continue in the process of sanctification. Again, I should want that not just for myself, but for my brothers. We should desire to live our lives for the glory of God. And if we love our brother or sister, we should want that for them too. And to do mission together. To see that as my brother and my sister and those in my community are staying on this pathway, being conformed to the image of Christ, that we will be better able to be God's faithful tool in the fulfillment of the great commission. But we gotta own that. Can you own that? Can you own that as part of your responsibility that you're a chiseler? But secondly, equally important, is to admit that I need to be chiseled. God wants to use others Not only does he want me to use me to sharpen the faith of the people around me, but he wants to use others to sharpen my faith and to chip away at the rough edges in my life. So biblical community is one of the primary arenas where this chiseling takes place. And if you've been in biblical community for any length of time, you know this to be the case. As we press into community more and more, over time, a number of things will begin to happen. Not all at once. God is gracious. It'll take time. But over time, eventually, somebody's going to take their mask off. Unless we we short-circuit the process, and we're not bought into these whys, and and we're not fueled to pursue community for ourself and for the sanctification of our brothers and sisters, if we short-circuit that process, some of this stuff won't happen. And, and, and there's a part of us that's okay with that because this stuff is uncomfortable and it's awkward and it's weird. But what's it doing? It's chipping away the rough edges. You know, that chipping away for that rock might not be real comfortable for the rock. But that rock wasn't intended to be a raw rock. It was intended to be a beautiful statue. And we were never intended to stay unconformed to the image of Christ. We were intended to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we step out and we pursue it and over time, somebody takes their mask off. Somebody shows us something about themselves that needs to be chipped away. They've been struggling with something. We see a a rough edge, a jagged part of that something that God intends to chip away at in order to conform them to the image of Jesus. Or maybe somebody's going to get offended by somebody else in your group. And by the way, that's bound to happen. It's bound to happen as we press into this. The base group that never encounters conflict is like the couple, the married couple, that never argues neither one exists right there's only two kinds of base groups somebody just got it (laughs) maybe it was a young married couple i don't know there's only two kinds of base groups those that are encountering conflict and those that will encounter conflict but when that comes it will reveal rough edges in some one or multiple people in that group that God intends to chip away at. Maybe we need to re- be reminded that God is sovereign in community and he puts us around one another, not just so that we'll have good friends that we can watch TV with, although I like that, but so that we will be made holy, so that he will chip away at those parts of us that need that So be prepared for it. Expect it. Expect it both in yourself and in others. God wants to work on you through others, and God wants to work on others through you in the context of community. Because this is inevitable, the third implication of what we've been talking about is that I need to know how to use this chisel. If I'm a chiseler... And if I need to be chiseled and others need to be chiseled and that's part of my responsibility as a chiseler then I need to know how to chisel. I need to know how to use this instrument that God has given to me. I need to know how to take the gospel as God's instrument to chisel away the rough edges of our lives. I need to grow in my understanding of what the gospel is and I need to grow in my skillfulness of how to use that chisel when God calls me to. This is part of why In our base group studies, we spent four weeks talking about the gospel before we ever started preaching about sent together here on Sunday morning. We've been pressing into what the gospel is. I need to know what the gospel is if I have any hope of being able to utilize it to chisel away the rough edges in myself and in others. But, but, But how do we use it? How do we utilize the gospel in community... To chisel away the rough edges so that we look more like Jesus. It starts... It starts a very basic place, a very obvious place, and that is that we have to notice the rough edges, right? When the sculptor comes up to the rock, he's got to realize where those rough edges are. He, he, has, to, he has to know where, where are those things that need to be chipped away. First of all, he's got to have a plan, right? He's got to have some kind of vision of what that statue is going to look, look like. So do we. We need a plan. We need a blueprint. That's the Bible, right? What we see in Scripture is a description of what God is conforming us into in the image of Christ. So that's laid out for us as sculptors. But how do we take the chisel and begin to chip away? Well, first of all, we've got to see where this life doesn't match up with this image that we're being conformed into. What are those rough edges? We need to notice them. And when I say rough edges, I'm talking about something thats is like that is un-Christ-like, that, that, that doesn't conform to the image of Christ that we see in Scripture. Not something that annoys us. Right? Perhaps if the annoyance is more of a problem for us, then that's our problem, not theirs. Okay? The, the rough edges that need to be chipped away by the gospel is not the things that annoy us necessarily. But it's the things that are unChrist-like, sinful behavior, sinful thoughts, a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God, discouragement. So, how do we notice these things that are unChrist-like? How, how do we become aware of these rough edges? Well, fundamentally, we have to be around people, right? <laughs> we, we have to know people. We have to get to know them. Now, the easiest way is when they tell us, right? When somebody takes off their mask in community and, and says to us, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time believing God for this. I, I'm, I'm struggling with temptation here. And, and that's, that's the easiest way for us to notice rough edges is when they tell us themselves. Other times it might be observed. But in order for us to observe it, what does that require? It requires life on life, right? It requires us to know one another. It requires more than what happens here. And I would submit to you, it requires more than our once a week gathering in our base groups. It requires life on life. Something additional. Something else. And perhaps in those settings, we're going to see something. Now, sometimes it's obvious to us. We see a behavior. We, we hear a thought. Uh, we, We hear them say something that reveals a thought. Other times, it's something that's subtle that gives us an indication that something's not right. We don't see it on the surface. We have to dig for it and ask questions in order to uncover the rough edge, whatever that might be. Let's say, for example, that you're making dinner with another couple. Um, you're at your house, you're making dinner, you're going to share a meal together, or maybe you're, uh, you're serving with one another. You're, you're together on mission like we're talking about, and you're serving with one another in some way. And in the course of that conversation, the wife of the couple makes a comment that she and her husband have had a hard time spending time together lately. In fact, they, they really haven't been spending a whole lot of time together recently. And the wife says this, and on the surface it might seem like a benign comment, but perhaps the way that she says it indicates to you that there's maybe there's more to this than she's letting on to. And so you have a choice at this point. You can choose to ignore it, right? You can, you can choose to say, listen, it's their business they haven't invited me in there. This is, this is their business. This is not my responsibility. I'm just going to ignore it unless they just come right out and ask me about it. Or we can accept the responsibility of trying to pursue this. We can accept the responsibility of being devoted to the koinonia, being devoted to this sharedness that we have with one another. Such that we ask questions. We try to get under the surface. Why? Because we're concerned about them. We want to see them chipped away at. So that they conform to the image of Christ. And in doing so. Maybe we discover that they're just too busy. Maybe we discover that they've. Maybe they're both seeking to find their identity in their jobs. Their careers. Rather than in their marriage. Maybe we discover And uncover some form of idolatry in their life. Maybe their job has become their God. Their pursuit of material possession has become their God. Their pursuit of success, accomplishment has become their God. Maybe um, there are other things that they've filled their life with that have caused this that have become their idol. Or maybe you discover that there's been a lack of forgiveness on the part of one of them. Or that somehow they've just stopped overlooking one another's faults. Whatever it is, the point is you'll never find it unless you get under the surface and you ask questions. And by the way, if this is, is going to work, if our, if our rough edges in the body of Christ in community are going to be chiseled away at by the gospel in community, then not only must we choose to go there for others, for their Benefit and for the glory of God to be reflected in them, but we must also choose to be willing to let others go there with us, right? Because I'm both a chiseler and a rock that needs to be chiseled away at. So, part of this is us giving others permission to ask questions and dig a little bit under the surface, dig into our thoughts, our actions our motives, behind our thoughts and actions. And by the way, I believe this does need to be by permission. We need to be gracious about this. Don't start chiseling away on someone's rough edges if they're not exactly ready for you to do so. Seek permission. Hey, I heard that um, you guys have, you know, had a hard time lately, and you haven't been spending much time together lately. Would you mind if we just had coffee and chatted about that so that we can try to get, get to the root issues of what's causing that? Because I, I'm here for your marriage. I'm here for the glory of God in you and your wife and, and in your marriage together. Could we do that? Seek permission. Don't just pull out the chisel and start pounding away. Remember that we're talking about real lives here, real people. So after noticing the rough edges, after noticing something that doesn't match up with the image of Christ that we have in Scripture, then we need to discover why it's there. Why is that, why is that thing there? What's, what's fueling that? What's causing that? And this is where we begin to uncover uh, something in their belief system that's gone awry. Perhaps some lies that they have begun to buy into. For example, if you're meeting as a men's group and a brother finally takes off his mask one day and he says, guys, I I need you to pray for me. I've been tempted to look at some stuff on my computer or my iPhone and I know I shouldn't be looking at that. I've been tempted there and I've given in a few times. Would you pray for me to have the strength to stand up against that temptation? And that's great that happens. But how do we typically respond to that? Typically, if someone says something like that in a setting like that, we respond in one of two ways. Either we pat them on the back and say, it's okay. We all struggle in different ways. We all struggle perhaps in even that way. And we tell them that we'll pray for them. And maybe we do, maybe we don't, but then we move on. And unfortunately, sometimes what we can subconsciously, not, not, we don't mean to, but we communicate to them that sin is no big deal. That, it, that it's not it's not that big of a deal. You know, a lot of guys struggle with it. We're all in, in this with you. Pat on the back. And maybe we'll pray for you. But sin is a huge deal. Any kind of sin is a huge deal before a holy God. So we need to be careful not to play soft with these rough edges when they become real to us. We need to be gracious but not soft. On the other hand, sometimes we tend to respond by focusing solely on the behavior. Just, just the outward behavior itself. We encourage them to not look at that stuff. Perhaps we'll get some kind of filter on their computer, some kind of app on their phone that's going to help them with that. And and we'll set up some kind of accountability structure for them to, to help them in the places of temptation. And all of those are good. Please hear me. All of those strategies are good strategies. It is just that by themselves they are incomplete. Because if all we do is address the outward behavior, then we're never addressing the heart. Where does Jesus say that stuff comes from? He says, what what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And if we're not addressing the heart, then we're not addressing the root issues. And if we're not addressing the root issues, then eventually they're going to come back. They're going to come back. At some point, that accountability structure is going to break down or find a way around it or we'll outlive it, and those same root issues will return. And so we have to be able to address the heart. Think about Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. In the course of that conversation, it came out that this woman had had five husbands. And there's nothing that tells us that these husbands all died, and so she biblically found the next husband. And Jesus said that the one that you're living with now, actually, he's not even your husband. You're just shacking up with him. So this comes out in the course of the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well. Jesus could have, in that moment, focused just on the outward behavior. The sin of adultery, which is what it was. He could have focused just on that, but he didn't. Now, let's be careful here. There is absolutely nothing in this account in John chapter 4 that tells us that Jesus just overlooked her sin or that Jesus didn't think it was a big deal or that Jesus didn't think it was a sin. Not at all. It was a sin. It was destructive and it was a big deal. But Jesus didn't immediately address the outward behavior. What did he do? Instead, he uncovered a deeper need. A need for satisfaction. A need that she had for contentment. A thirst that she had. That everything that she was filling her life with, husbands included, wasn't fulfilling. And after Jesus unveiled, uncovered that deeper need, what did he do? He pointed to himself as the one, the only one that could fulfill that need. We can learn a lot of lessons from Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, but one of the lessons that we can learn from that is that we should seek to find out what's underneath our brother or sister's sin. What's driving it? What's the deeper need that is there? So when a guy says, Please please pray for me, please pray for me to have the strength to not give in to that kind of temptation, man, do the accountability, put your arm on him, pray for him, but ask permission to go there. And then once that permission is granted, go there by asking, I wonder why that is. Let's unpack what's what's a part of your belief system. What are the subtle lies that perhaps you're buying into as you engage in that? Maybe they think they deserve to look at that stuff for whatever reason, for whatever thing might be going on in their life that, 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 in some kind of subtle maybe even subconscious way that they, they think they deserve that. Maybe they think it's no big deal. Maybe they think it's not going to hurt anyone. These are all lies that we begin to unpack in this. Or maybe the example is you've got a, you've got a friend that's uh, struggling with gossiping or complaining, having a complaining spirit. And as you seek permission and begin to dive underneath the surface of that, maybe you find out that they have a faulty impression of who they are in Christ. And out of their sinful insecurity, they're acting out by gossiping about others or complaining in some way, whatever the case might be. But what happens is we we begin to see some of these subtle lies. And that's helpful because then we, be, we can begin to apply the gospel and dismantle those lies. Because the gospel contains the truth that's going to rob those lies of their power. So the third aspect of learning how to use the gospel in this process of someone, someone being conformed to the image of Christ through the application of the gospel, through the application of the gospel as a chisel in their life, the third aspect aspect of that is to replace lies with truth. This is where we take the gospel and replace those lies with gospel truth. If the lie is, I actually feel like I deserve this or that. I, I, I deserve to be respected. I deserve to make money. I deserve this thing, that thing, whatever it might be. But what does gospel truth say? Romans 1 and 2 and first part of 3. We don't deserve anything except eternal judgment. That's what gospel truth says. So we replace that lie with truth. If the lie is, you know, what's really important is that people like me. It's, it's, it's of utmost importance that people accept me. If that's the lie that's underneath some kind of sinful thought or behavior or action or whatever, then we apply gospel truth to that. And gospel truth is that it is of utmost importance that God accept you. And he does through Christ in you. You see how that, that completely changes your frame of reference. And we, we like to talk a lot about how we have to preach this to ourselves. Church, we need to preach this to one another Because you know and I know that there are times when we are weak. And when we're weak, we have a tendency to isolate and not move towards community, but move away from community. And so, church, we got to see our role as a chiseler and go after these brothers and sisters in Christ and reach them and preach truth to them. Not like I'm doing to you, but sitting down on a sofa, putting your feet up on their coffee table, with a cup of tea or coffee in your hand and talking about life and identifying these lies and replacing them with gospel truths. Maybe the lie is, you know what, this is, this is no big deal. This is, a, this is a small sin. And truth says, there are no small or insignificant sins. They are all equally wrong and evil, destructive and deserving of punishment. And so we look at the cross if we're, if we're sinfully insecure, we look at the cross and we see the love of God for us. And if we're in this place where we think our sin is small, we look at the cross and we see the weight of our sin. If the lie is, I, I need this thing or this person in order for me to be satisfied, what is the gospel truth that counteracts that? Our greatest delight is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we delight in him, that is the greatest satisfaction in the world. If we want to be satisfied, press into Jesus. Not this action or this thing. Because they can't do that. Now the goal of identifying these lies and replacing them with truth, the goal is repentance. That's the goal, right? That our brother or sister, or we, or or, or us, if, if we're the person in that setting, that we might turn away from our sin, that we might genuinely grieve and have sorrow over that sin so much that we turn away from it and have faith in Jesus to keep changing us and put our hope in us finding victory in this sin. In Christ who is in us. That's the goal. The goal is repentance. And how, how beautiful would it be for us to gather around a brother or sister. and Maybe it's just one or two. As they pray a prayer of repentance, they've been chiseled by the gospel in your hands or the hands of someone else, and they are praying a prayer of repentance. Lord, I am so sorry for this, but I thank you for my brother or sister who had the courage to take the gospel and and dismantle that lie and apply gospel truth. God, change me. Change me to look more like Jesus. That's the goal. Church, we ought to love one another enough to want that for one another. And this is going to be awkward. And, 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 and as we try this, we're going to fumble over our words and it's going to look weird and it's going to look crazy, but it's going to be good. We ought to love one another more than our awkwardness would prevent us from going there. Love one another enough to want this for them. To be conformed to the image of Christ. And not just want that for them, but want that for God. For God to be glorified as he conforms me to the image of Christ, as I allow others to chisel away at my life, and as I step out in faith and trust Jesus to open my mouth and use the gospel to chisel away at the rough edges of their life so that our God might be glorified through us. Not as a collection of individuals redeemed for the glory of God but as a people redeemed for the glory of God. If you've here, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this stuff is super weird, right? It's super weird. As we talk about pressing into community and applying the gospel to chisel away at one another, but the reality is if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're not even in the community. As Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, you're outside the family of God but I believe that God has you this, here this morning because he wants you to hear this gospel truth that, that, that not only saves you from the, from the power of sin that we're wrestling with still, and, and, and it's not only something that, 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 that is one day, it is now, today, by trusting in Jesus Christ as your only hope, you can be rescued from what you and I and all of us deserve because of our rebellion against a holy God. He loved you enough to send a redeemer, He was jealous enough for your worship which you were made to give to him that you're now giving to someone else, probably yourself. He is jealous enough for that worship that he sent Jesus to rescue you. Will you trust in Christ to save you from the penalty of sin? And church, saints, will you trust in Christ to be used as a sculptor to chisel away at these brothers and sisters that God has put you in community with and will you be willing to go there and let them chisel away at you for the glory of the fame of Christ let's pray